completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Hey, welcome back to Unbalanced Views. This is the fourth and final episode of the Robin John's Epic Tur- Journey. We're going to pick up right where we left off in episode three. And I want you to know we really appreciate you coming back and listening to this whole story. Thanks again. We can understand why the Robin Johns might have sought out Methodists in Bristol. We have not addressed why those Methodists warmly accepted the Robin John into their companies. We need to do that uh, to understand what's going on. It is possible that the Robin Johns were viewed as a kind of uh, exotic trophies uh, to be paraded about particularly since their conversion might be seen as a kind of triumph of Methodism over the, quote, savage spirit, end quote. Right. There was also a famous novel by a woman named Afra Ben in 1688, now about 100 years before the Robin Johns, that was titled uh, Orinoco, or The History of the Royal Slave. Now, this was a very popular novel, even until the Robin John's time in England. So it remained popular almost 100 years later. The novel depicted the tragic story of a slave-trading African prince who was captured and sold into slavery in Suriname. So you could understand why that might relate to the Robin John's. Sure. Yeah, yeah, right. It became a source of a popular trope, the, quote, noble African slave, end quote. Orunut, see, it's hard to pronounce. It's Orunoku. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Oru Noko. So let me try that one more time. Oru Noko. Oru not going to work here anymore. Oru Noko. It's a tough one. It's O R. Listen to this. It's O R O O N O K O. Good luck. Brutal. It's brutal. Orunoko was adapted for the stage, and in 1749, as luck would have it, it was performed with two African princes in the audience. Now, these two princes, not the Robin Johns, mind you, these two princes had been sent to England for education. But while there, they had been kidnapped, enslaved, and sent to the Americas and sold. Yeah. Holy shit. Now, they were eventually rescued and brought back to England. And when they came back to England, They were invited as guests to see this play. When they entered the theater, they received a standing ovation. And while watching the play, one of them fled from the theater, overwhelmed with the emotion, while the other stayed there and he just openly wept throughout the play. Yeah. Well, I mean, one would imagine it would be powerful Mm -hmm. if there was basically like a a dramatic depiction in theater of your experiences, right? Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. So again, the Robin Johns are unique, but they're not completely unique. Right. Okay. By the 1770s and 1780s, England's most famous writers had all taken up the cause of the noble African slave. Though it should be noted here, like they did not care very much for the rank and file, like enslaved person. Only those who fit some sort of concept of the, quote, perfect victim. So they were all inspired by these people that shouldn't have been enslaved. They were fine 
with most people being enslaved. Right. Yeah. Right. So again, if you're a prisoner and you were enslaved, your fault. If you were a prince and you were captured and enslaved, great story that you were released. Exactly. Which is kind of interesting that you would, uh, you know, that, that people could, could draw such a distinction in their brain. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the Robin John story reflected the kind of zeitgeist of the time, right? And that's why so many people accepted them. Because, you know, they understood them within the context of the novel or the play. Um, perhaps it was just a matter of class, right? As one scholar noted, quote, freeborn Britons could feel for a prince, particularly a prince in distress, end quote. So, you know, regular British people, people who were born free, regular, regular middle class, I shouldn't say regular, middle class bourgeois British people, stories about princes who had been laid low against their will or in some unjust way. That was a trope that they could all kind of relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, um, either way, it doesn't really matter, I guess. The Robin Johns were fortunate to have found the Wesleys and the Methodists of Bristol. John and Charles Wesley, especially, were unusual in their social circles because they had personally witnessed the horrors of American slavery. Now, the Wesleys had traveled on a mission trip to Georgia in 1736. John went to Savannah and Charles went to Frederica. And even though slavery was illegal in Georgia in 1736, enslaved people made up the majority of the population in South Carolina. And of course, lots of people from South Carolina came into Georgia for all sorts of things. Because, sure. you know, especially from border regions, mm-hmm. right? So the, and, and of course, the Wesleys also traveled up to South Carolina because they're on a, a mission to convert people. So not only did they say, see enslaved people from South Carolina and Georgia, they also saw enslaved people in South Carolina. So the Wesleys were haunted by what they saw there. Both of them really were. Slavery made such an impact on John Wesley that he spent the rest of his life denouncing chattel slavery. And really he could never get it out of his mind uh, as evidence from like his journal. And he, it's never, you know, you don't have to go very many pages before he's railing against the evils of slavery in his own journals and his letters and things like that. Like he, he never stopped thinking about it. It, it really burned into his brain. Charles uh, while in Georgia, kept a journal where he described the punishments and horrors. Quote, it were endless to recount all the shocking instances of diabolical cruelty these men, as they call themselves, daily practice upon their fellow creatures. End quote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, these guys were impacted. Mm-hmm. In 1772, John Wesley read a pamphlet that was written by a Philadelphia Quaker named Anthony Benezet oh, that was about the slave trade. John reported that the slave trade was, quote, the sum of all villainies, and I read of nothing like it in the heathen world, whether ancient or modern, and it infinitely exceeds every instance of barbarity, end quote. So, I mean, strong words, right? Wesley and Benezet began a correspondence. They even shared the story of the Robin Johns across the Atlantic, writing back and forth. In 1774, John wrote a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon Slavery, where he attacked the idea that Africa was, quote, so remarkably horrid, dreary, and barren that it is a kindness to deliver them out of it, end quote. He also attacked writers like Edward Long, instead arguing that Africans were not, quote, senseless, brutish, lazy barbarians, but rather, quote, sensible, industrious to the highest degree, mild, friendly, and kind to strangers. The African is in no respect inferior to the European, 
end quote. So again, I mean, this is pretty unusual for the time, mm-hmm. right? For a, for a white guy, a middle class, a preacher, you know, preachers did pretty well. Um, you know, at a time where basically you could only get three degrees from college, uh, you know, that was a theology degree, a law degree, or a medical degree. <laughs> you know, you only those were the only three professions available. Mm-hmm. And medical was natural meant natural sciences, you know, which meant like you're either a scientist or a doctor or something like that. You know what I mean? Like um theologians or preachers or whatever who went to college were among the most educated bourgeois in the society, right? Mm-hmm. Finally, even though the Robin Johns themselves had been slave traders, and the Wesleys certainly confronted them about this, the Wesleys placed ultimate responsibility for the slave trade at the feet of European traders who had enticed Africans into preying upon one another as they saw it. Europeans had introduced alcohol and firearms, and they fomented wars that would produce captives. Thus, the Wesleys could both condemn the slave trade and develop warm relations with the Robin Johns simultaneously. Mm -hmm. There was no contradiction as far as they were concerned. The Robin Johns were baptized and converted, and as Ancona wrote to Charles, quote, Almighty great, great God protected us from all danger and gave me knowledge to remember what I have suffered, end quote. So at least as far as Ancona is concerned, he remembered how terrible it was to be enslaved. (laughs) The Robin John's months in Bristol uh, among the Methodists were productive, but they longed to be home. And finally, in mid-August, they learned that Thomas Jones had, quote, fitted out a ship for us. We suppose she will be ready in about five weeks. Now, that was in Mm mid-August. So just remember, mid-August, they're like, should be ready in five weeks, end quote. (laughs) Little Ephraim also had heard from his brother, Grandy King George, who had himself learned the Robin Johns were alive and well, and so he had been back in touch with his family in Old Calabar. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jones's ship, Maria, was not ready until February of 1774. So remember, in mid-August, they're writing like, should be ready in five weeks, and it's finally ready in February. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so when you say, I remember in the last episode, you were like, I don't know. I have a hard time believing this is a business. I have a hard time believing that people would be anchored for months and months and months. Well, here you go. Well, it's the year, too. It's- here's in England, you know, with the richest trader in Bristol. Right. It took him from August till February to get the ship ready. Correct. So imagine how much more difficult it was to get everything you needed and ready to go, provisioned and all that. So... The ship was not ready until February 1774. When it set sail in February, it had to pretty quickly return. Quote, the wind being contrary for we go home to Old Calabar, said Little Ephraim, end quote. On March 12th, 1774, the Maria set sail again. Now, the ship was fitted out as a slave ship and had been used so as a veteran of several slaving voyages. It had delivered 437 out of 525 enslaved Africans to the Caribbean. So again, 437 out of 525. So they lost about 90 people. Wow. Not great. Not great. Nope. The captain was William Floyd, who you might remember from earlier when I said Thomas Jones had found William Floyd, Mm -hmm. who had been first mate or who had been a mate during the massacre of 1767. So he was the one that had actually provided the affidavit uh, detailing Ambrose Lace's role in the massacre and helped get that writ of habeas corpus. Well, now he's going to be the captain, uh, but he had served aboard the Indian Queen during the massacre of 1767. Okay. Uh So again, like all the same, it's amazing how like all the same characters keep popping up over and over and over. It's, it's tells you how kind of tight knit everything Uh really is. Yeah. 
Okay, so they set sail again, March 12th, 1774. Unfortunately, because it's the Robin Johns and they have the worst luck ever, the Maria did not make it to Old Calabar. The ship instead wrecked off the coast of a desert island called Boa Vista in the Cap Verde Islands. So the Cap Verde Islands are uh, were discovered with giant scare quotes around it by the Portuguese. They are uh, off the west coast of uh, the sort of the... They're off the, the, you know, you know, West Africa looks like an ice cream falling out of an ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. The, the ice cream part, the, that West Coast, that lump. If you go due West from there, uh, you go due West from there, you'll run into the Cap Verde Islands. They're, I gotcha. uh, right there. The, the Spanish, uh, the Spanish quote unquote found the Canary Islands. The Portuguese found the Cap Verde Islands. They're both right there. Gotcha. Um, sort of out in the Atlantic, but, uh, you know, but closer to the the coast of Africa than the coast of England, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's where they uh, that's where they shipwreck on this desert island of Boa Vista. Um, because I, I say that because Boa Vista means good views in Portuguese. Ah, uh, if it had been a Spanish island, it would have been called Buena Vista. Buena Vista. And then Disney would have sued them for mm-hmm. copyright infringement. That's right. And now they'd be called you know Desert Space or something. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, Ancona and Little Ephraim blamed the shipwreck on the drunken incompetence of William Floyd. <laughs> so, so the guy that had actually written an affidavit to get drunk. them free, yeah, almost killed them through his drunken incompetence uh, by wrecking the ship off the coast of the islands. The ship was, quote, dashed to pieces against you rocks and sunk, and all your crew escaped with only their lives in a small boat, after which they were near starved. End quote. Eventually, they were rescued by a passing ship and returned to Bristol, dressed in borrowed rags. <laughs> the Robin Johns lodged with Elizabeth Johnson when they returned to Bristol. Quote, all was disappointment for the men, and they are at a loss to know ye voice of God. End quote. After this latest ordeal, the shipwreck seemed to especially impact little Ephraim. Johnson explained that Ancona, quote, is as easy as a bird without care or fear. But Ephraim is greatly altered. He sees and fears approaching difficulties. And he seems so full for Mr. Jones's expenses. End quote. This fear was well-founded. Thomas Jones uh, found the Robin, jo- Robin Johns at this point were more of an economic liability than he was willing to pay. So he was perfectly willing to outfit a slave ship to send to Old Calabar to send them back. Again, thinking that they would probably, you know, uh, treat him with favor in trading later on. But after the ship wrecked and everything else, he's like, man, I've spent enough money putting you up. Cause again, these guys have no jobs or anything in England. They're, mm-hmm. they're essentially relying on charity the whole time they're there. And they're there like uh, over a year. Anyway, Thomas Jones complained about the cost of their upkeep. And now he refused to have anything more to do with them. Uh, Miss Johnson wrote to Charles Wesley, quote, the barbarity of poor Mr. Jones has increased much, end quote. So I imagine he was being a real dickhead. Mm-hmm. Little Ephraim was most concerned about their debt to Thomas Jones. The Wesleys had impressed upon the Robin Johns the importance of abandoning the slave trade upon their return to Old Calabar. And Ancona certainly seems to have agreed. Remember, Ancona's the one that wrote about how he can't stop thinking about the horrors they experienced. Mm. But little Ephraim wrote to Charles Wesley to ask, quote, how shall I pay my good friend, Mr. Jones, who has been so kind 
in laying out so much money to save us. If we must not sell slaves, I know not how we shall pay, which I have great desire to do, end quote. So, I mean, there's an obvious problem here. He's like, I want to pay back this debt. Sure. But like the only thing that I know how to, like back home, the only thing our family does is slave trade. Yep. So, you know, you like you've asked before, like, what about the morality? Like, what don't people, you know, like, how do people view this? And the prisoner component is certainly one, like the war captive or whatever. Yep. But like, these guys sell women and children into slavery. Like, it's hard to justify women and children as war captives and a real threat to your society. You, Correct. you know what I mean? Correct. Um, and so, you know, the, but in this case, you know, you can see here's, here's little Ephraim, like who's been through horrors, but he's like, how else am I supposed to make this money back? Like, how am I supposed to pay this back? Now, this also sort of tells us something probably about Thomas Jones in that Jones is probably telling them, you know, this is a loan. This is not a gift. You know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, the fact that that little Ephraim is is thinking about uh, how he needs to pay this back suggests something about how Thomas Jones is also presenting it to them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yep. Anyway, yep. this brings us to an important point. The Robin John sought to return to a society in which slavery and the slave trade trade was embedded. But slavery was supposed to be governed by a set of social rules and customs about who could be enslaved and how enslaved people should be treated. They were guided by certain elite ruling principles. When Thomas Jones, a slave trader, helped the Robin Johns fight their illegal enslavement, it actually reinforced the very foundation of slavery, right? The idea that some people could legally be slaves. It reinforced the hierarchy with elites above enslavement and certain people among the common working folks subject to it. So, of course, European colonists, rapacious, their rapacious hunger for ever more enslaved people helped shape and change the African rules of enslavement as they had long existed. But, like, still, there were rules. If the Robin Johns chose to ignore the Wesleys on this issue, right, recognizing that slavery and the slave trade was bad, but engaging in it anyway... That would have been consistent with many, many, many white Methodists of the time who were doing the exact same thing. Mm. So, you know, so again, they're not, they're not outlier. Uh, lots of middle class, you know, sort of bourgeois people sure. did the same thing. Sure. And we see it today. I mean, we see the same thing today. People professing Christianity, um, but like having no problem charging interest on loans and sure, things like that, sure. right? Like we see the same thing. Anyway. Uh, what happened, though, is that Thomas Jones was reminded that he was still bound by an agreement uh, in Lord Mansfield's court. You remember when they came to a secret arrangement with Captain Bevins and all that, mm-hmm. uh, where Bevins paid 120 pounds and Captain O'Neill dropped his fraudulent claim. Well, part of that deal was that Thomas Jones agreed to get the Robin Johns back to Old Calabar. So he was sort of reminded that, like, hey... If you don't get them back to Old Calabar, you're going to be in violation of like, you know, this, this, uh, this rule that was agreed upon in the King's court. And that's going to be a legal problem for him. That will probably cost him more money than getting them home. So he arranged another passage for the Robin Johns in September 1774. Now, again, delays set them back another time. These poor guys constantly think they're going home and it never happens. So finally, though, I thought my flights were bad. These guys are just unbelievable. The delays is unreal. I mean, these guys, they get kidnapped, sent to Dominica. They escape, think they're going home. They get sold in Virginia. (laughs) 
They're like looking for an opportunity. They're, the, the guy that owns them dies. They manage to escape again. They get thrown on another ship that's bound for Virginia. They're like, what? You know, then they, then they have to like, after like, have to write three letters before anybody does anything. <laughs> then they get freed and immediately get arrested. <laughs> yeah. And then like have to argue their case again before finally they're, free. I mean, it's crazy. Then their first ship like gets delayed, delayed, delayed for, I mean, they think it's going to be five weeks. It ends up being what, like seven months later or something. And then, and then it shipwrecks and they end up back. <laughs> then they think they're finally going home and it gets delayed again for another month. It's, it's, I mean, psychologically, these poor guys, it's absolute torture. Yeah, no question. And of course, and in the middle of this psychological torture is enslavement. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, I guess to on some level, you're like, like, no matter how long you have to wait, you're like, well, this is still better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've, we've dealt with worse. Like, we've dealt with worse. Unreal. Um, but, but still, at a certain point, you have to be thinking... Especially, you know, you're like religious, you're religious guys, you know, you've converted to Christianity now. At a certain point, you have to be thinking, why God, why? Right. You're going to start questioning. Yes. So, finally, October 14th, 1774, while Americans are like, I don't know, leading up to uh, to a, uh, a revolution. A big firework display. Yeah. The Robin Johns set sail for Old Calabar aboard the slave ship Cato. Hmm. The old, the old Cato Kalen. That's exactly right. Cato, Cato. Now I can't believe you went to Cato Kalen as opposed to <laughs> like Cato the Elder or Cato the Younger from uh, from Roman history. <laughs> as an Italian, your Italian card should be revoked for going to the wrong Cato. <laughs> anyway, I mean, at the very least, you could have gone to the uh, the what libertarian think tank, the Cato Institute. Well, the OJ trial dominated my youth. As a 21-year-old. Yeah. Still. <laughs> still. Anyway. So their Methodist friends in Bristol worried about that as they did not receive any news about the voyage for more than a year. And, like, we know they worried about them because they, like, wrote about them. You know what I mean? Like, there were letters and things that are like, I, I hope they got back. I hope our friends made it back and all that stuff. Finally, <laughs> on my birthday, November 1st, 1775. So... One year and two weeks later, after they left, mm-hmm. Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, my two African children got safe home, end quote. Now, we don't know for sure, but the evidence suggests that little Ephraim returned to the slave trade, as he suggested he was going to. Now, less is known about Ancona, um, but it seems likely that maybe he didn't. Now, ethic oral tradition credits Ancona and little Ephraim with the spread of Christianity in the area which is interesting. Uh One Calabar historian wrote, quote, and I want you to really listen to what I say, because like, there's some things here that should immediately be like red flags. So this Calabar historian wrote, quote, it is a well-known fact among the ethics of old Calabar that two ethic graduates of Ambo out or King Robin descent from Obutung or old town were carried away in the 1767 bombardment. It was they who came in the 19th century back to Old Calabar to demand the coming of the Presbyterian mission, end quote. So the few things that should jump out at you is, why are they bringing, why are they being credited with a Presbyterian mission when they were clearly involved with the Methodists? Uh-huh. Second, we know that they went back in 1774. Why did it take until the 19th century before they 
brought a Christian mission, right? Like, I mean, the 19th century, that's 26 years after they arrived or 25 years after they, I mean, and we're probably not talking about 1800, we're talking about later. So obviously this is not exactly accurate. Like this is the oral history of the area. And I, I say all this because I want to talk about oral history just for a minute with the la- this last little part of the story. Oral history is usually, like in Western societies, people treat oral history as something like the telephone game. Oh, you know, you play the telephone game. The, at the end of the line of the telephone game, the, the information is always wrong. Correct? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's the whole that's the whole gag. Exactly. You, even if you only take 10 people, right. the last person gets the, the message. The message is always changed. However, in societies that have oral history cultures, the message might be wrong, but there are lots of elements of truth in the message because it it kind of evolves. People don't really like to admit this, but written history evolves in much the same way. Like, we constantly have to reevaluate history as we study it. Um, If not, when, like, the Dunning School said, hey, Reconstruction was a catastrophe where a bunch of corrupt former slaves ran the government for a while and they grifted and they stole and everything was awful, you know, and that was based on uh, most of the Dunning, Dunning school of, of reconstruction history was based on looking at documents written by like former slave owners who were mad that they no longer had political power. Mm-hmm. Now, since then scholars have reexamined a lot of the documents and they're like, well, it was much more of a mixed bag. There were a lot of like really important things that happened in terms of civil rights and all that. But eventually this was all rolled back or a lot of it was rolled back and blah, blah, blah. But like the the history of, say, the Reconstruction era after the Civil War has been far more complicated by by scholars. You know, when you have a bunch of white guys (laughs) researching this in the 1910s, right, versus versus like after, say, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and after the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 60s, and you have African Americans graduating from college in larger numbers, and then re-examining these same, uh, these same issues from a completely different perspective, you know, you're going to get a different mm-hmm. version of history, yep. because they're able to ask questions that nobody thought to ask. Mm-hmm. They're able to interrogate sources in a way that other people didn't. They're like, they start asking questions like, how much can we trust a former plantation owner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as they yep. describe how how horrible the situation was. And more importantly, they're writing it after they've regained power right. and want to talk about how great it is that they're back in power. You, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. So my point is that uh, written history has its own problems. Oral history has its own problems. And I want to interrogate the oral history a bit because I think it's interesting. Okay. So obviously that oral history is not exactly accurate. The very first Presbyterian mission arrived in Old Calabar in 1846. Now, that would be like 62 years after the Robin Johns returned, or 61 years. So, obviously, that's a little bit late for them to have been involved, right? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, even if we assume they were only in their 20s, you know, we're talking about a couple of guys in their 80s are bringing a mission over with them (laughs) after all the, after, like, after having been returned for 60 years, they're like, you know what we should do? We should bring a mission over. That's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, it's too long. For sure. However, there is truth in this account that I think is interesting. In 1778, the minutes of the Methodist Conference in Bristol denotes that there was a discussion about the establishment of a mission in Old Calabar. The request for the mission had come from Little Ephraim and Ancona in 1778, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Who wrote uh, saying, quote, they desired that missionaries 
might be sent to instruct them in the English language and the great principles of, the, of Christianity, end quote. Okay. So they wrote asking, please send missionaries that can come here and teach people here English and teach them Christianity. Elizabeth Johnson, who they had lived with, she had died since they left, but she had left a 500-pound legacy to establish a mission in Old Calabar if such a thing was ever possible. Don't surprise me. So the church had, or the, you know, they'd kind of held on to this 500 pounds in the, with the prospect that maybe a mission might be established one day. After several hours of discussion and prayer, the conference appointed two German brothers named Syndrome to go and establish the mission. Now, they were German, but they lived in Bristol mm-hmm. and had lived in Bristol for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just point out that they were German. Upon arrival, the Syndrome brothers were, quote, treated by the uncle of the princes with all possible attention, end quote. So they were welcomed warmly, right? Okay. I mean, they were treated with all possible attention. So they were, like, welcomed. They were happy to have them. I'm sure. Unfortunately for the brothers' syndrome, they pretty quickly succumbed to diseases <laughs> uh, in Africa like many Amer- uh, Europeans did. Right, yep. Almost, I almost said Americans, but that's also true. Absolutely. But they, they very quickly died from tropical diseases. When news reached Bristol that they were dead, There was a petition for volunteers that circulated, and we know at least one young man came forward. But John Wesley did not accept him. And the mission, we have no idea why. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Maybe this guy was crazy. I don't know. Like, maybe he had a bad reputation. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But Wesley did not accept him, and the mission to Old Old Calabar was abandoned. So it is true that the Robin Johns did bring the first missionaries to Old Calabar. And the oral history kind of conflated that event with the later history where there's a Presbyterian mission that actually manages to set roots and convert a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So they just sort of mix those two stories together in the oral history. So again, there's a lot of truth there. The Robin Johns did bring Christianity first. It didn't last. It didn't work. But then it's really easy to then credit them as the first mm-hmm. people to bring Christianity because they were. Anyway, so it's kind of interesting. I, I kind of like the way the story goes because it's like it doesn't really um, happen for another 60 years. But like the oral history, they actually get credit. If you think about how we write uh, oftentimes deal with history and even in the present. Oh, sure. We don't even usually do that kind of stuff. We screw it up worse than that. Like Thomas Edison is often given credit for being the inventor of all sorts of things. When Thomas Edison didn't invent much of anything, he just like was a, a rich guy with lots of investors who established a place where yes. he could bring smart people into work and invent stuff. And then he patented them all, all the smart, you know, all these things. So like, but Thomas Edison gets credit as some sort of brilliant inventor when he wasn't that <laughs> he was just like a capitalist who mm-hmm. basically took credit for other people's work. <laughs> and so he, he becomes the famous guy. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's really a kind of, I mean, our own history. We're bad at telling, you know, in some ways we're bad at telling the truth anyway. Whatever, I just point that out. It's whatever. I probably edit all this out. But that's right, okay. right, 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 right. Well, because this is like this is like a historian's. This is like a discussion for historians to have with historians, right? Um, like an interesting thing about the value of oral history versus written. Sure, both need to be interrogated. Neither one can be treated as if it's true. You know, that's all I mean. Yeah, I got you. I got you. The Robin Johns' legacy continued in England as well. Their story was told and retold by opponents of the slave trade. From the Wesleys to Anthony Benezet, who we mentioned before. Okay. A group of abolitionists organized themselves into the Anti-Slavery Society in 1787. 
and they decided to focus first on abolishing the transatlantic slave trade. Um, they could have focused on abolishing slavery as well, but they thought it was too much, like all at once. So they decided the slave trade was what they'd focus on. Gotcha. And then after that was done, then the intention was to focus on slavery itself, though they kind of they kind of dropped the ball on that. It still goes on today, so. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the members, a guy named Thomas Clarkson, who Samuel Taylor Coleridge, I don't know if you know Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was Never a met him. Famous... <laughs> It's a famous writer. He wrote the po- the unfinished poem, uh, Kublai Khan, okay. uh, which is one of my favorite, among all kinds of other things. Kublai Khan is one of my favorite poems because I tend to interpret it as being, um, it's unfinished, but I tend to interpret it as uh, a poem about, about the writing process. Mm-hmm. The story goes, I'm sorry, I'm going to digress. Okay. Co- Coleridge, the story goes, had taken a bunch of opium and sort of passed out. Mm-hmm. And when he woke up, he sort of woke up with a vision of this poem, and he started feverishly writing it down until his wife interrupted him. Sorry, it was a person from Porlock, not his wife, that interrupted Coleridge, and of course, that might just be a metaphor. Sorry about that. And then he couldn't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. He couldn't remember the rest. So it's it, it's unfinished. But to me, I have always questioned whether that's true or not, because when I read it, I saw it as um, a vision of kind of like what it means when, when I find myself engaged in writing, that it's a process that never ends. It's always unfinished. Uh-huh. That is, there's a beauty in poetry to it. As he described, you should read the poem. You'll understand better, but it's uh, okay. talks about uh, going to Xanadu where he meets Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan's son mm-hmm. and, uh, or grandson, but who, who really um, is like the glorious leader of the Mongolian empire. Sure. Uh, Genghis Khan conquers everything. Kublai Khan is the one who sort of benefits from the spoils, but also governs. Okay. While Europe was um, essentially like trading sheep for goods, Kublai Khan was like, you know, was was Scrooge McDucking swimming in gold coins. Sure. You know, as a result of Genghis Khan's conquests. Sure. Sure. Anyway, you should read the poem um, because it really like it. Uh, but anyway, I, I have always seen it as an allegory for writing myself. And so now with that all said, read the poem and think of it that way. And I'm going to leave some chunk of this in. Okay, good. Anyway, one member, Thomas Clarkson, who Samuel Taylor Coleridge called, quote, the moral steam engine, end quote, Ooh. of the movement. So, you know, he's the moral steam engine of the movement. Okay. Clarkson began traveling to collect evidence of all the evils or of the evils of the trade. And when he arrived in Bristol, he heard rumors of the massacre of 1767. And he heard stories about the capture and enslavement of the Robin Johns. Clarkson recognized the value of the Robin John story immediately. And he began chasing down clues uh, to try and both verify, but also fill out the details of their story and this massacre of 1767. Now, evidence was initially hard to come by, as we talked about, right? Like, yep. the, the tight-knit community of slavers right. in Bristol did not want to share. Of course for not. good reason. Of course not. Clarkson wrote, quote, The cruel transaction had been frequently mentioned to me, but as it had taken place 20 years before, I could not find one person who had been engaged in it, end quote. So even the people who had been engaged in it would would have been like, nope, don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Right. So to his credit, Clarkson was just like the Sherlock Holmes of researchers. Like the dude just kept digging. And, uh, well, Sherlock's, that's a bad example. He just kept digging. And um, finally, he tracked down a lead who gave him a copy of the court documents for 
The King versus Lippincott, 1773. Okay. The Robin Johns case before Lord Mansfield. Clarkson was shocked, and frankly, he was appalled by what he read. He knew that the bloodbath in 1767 would arouse public sympathy, and it would provide damning evidence against the slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. Like, anybody who hears that story about these uh, English captains who, like, just opened fire on people who were trying to escape, the the river running red with blood and all that, capturing these two princes, who couldn't feel sympathy, right? So... While continuing his investigation, he was introduced to Ambrose Lace, who you remember, again, was one of the captains involved. Mm -hmm. Now, Clarkson did not connect Lace to the massacre. Not at first. It wasn't until he was actually sitting down having breakfast with the man, and he wrote about it. He said, all of a sudden, quote, a kind of horror came over me. As, like, he realized it, like he recognized it. He says, I accused him of being concerned in it, it being the massacre. Right. Lace could only say it was bad business. It was bad business. But he never defended himself. We soon parted to the great joy of us all, <laughs> end quote. Which is one of the greatest lines I've ever read. He defended himself. He, like, he wouldn't defend himself. He was like, yeah, that was bad business. Let's move on. Yep. He's like, so we finished our breakfast. Like, we soon parted. And I love that. To the great joy of us all. Yes. Um, we were all very happy to not have this conversation anymore because you could hear like Clarkson is like, because I wanted to strangle this man (laughs) and this man wanted to strangle me. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, as Clarkson followed leads, abolitionists made other gains in England. I like that. In 1791, William Wilberforce was the chief abolitionist voice in parliament. Okay. Uh, in 1791, he proposed to an end to the slave trade in Parliament. It failed in the House of Commons. Now, this is really interesting. It failed, and upon the news, church bells pealed throughout Bristol. They actually pealed throughout the country. Now, one has to assume that those were Church of England church bells, Uh um, not Methodist church bells. Sure. (laughs) But, you know, because the Church of England was benefiting from this, you know, for a variety of reasons, not least of which, one of the reasons that we have a separation of church and state in this country was because the Church of England, of course, benefited from anything that uh, was done in England that was profitable because they they got a cut. So so they were, uh, you know, they didn't want to see the slave trade end because good money. They made money off of it, even if they weren't making it directly, although they were also doing that. That's either there. Anyway, upon the news, church bells peeled. Fireworks lit the skies. Oh, nice. And sailors were given a half-day holiday. Nice. So, you know, good for a couple of working men. That's awesome. However, yes. the public debates about uh, that uh, 1791 go. proposed bill began to stir a kind of revulsion in the public. Oh, uh, here we go. Who, generally speaking, they probably knew about as much about the transatlantic slave trade uh, and the horrors of it. As I did. As people today know about the horrors of, like, cocoa farming sure. uh, with enslaved sure, children, sure. right? Like, most people don't realize that Nestle allegedly uses enslaved children to harvest cocoa. They also don't know, say, for example, how, like, American recyclable waste gets handled in the developing world. Uh, yes. Or how few of our items get recycled. Right. I, I just figured that out. Or... That the logo was just developed by plant, by the, the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So regular people kind of understood these things the same way that regular people understand those things today. I mean, most people tangentially understood there was a slave trade, but most people probably had never really thought much about it. Yep. 
They've never really wondered much about it. Um, and so they were very, you know, susceptible to, they would be susceptible to sort of light propaganda, like you might find in the paper saying just where you, I mean, it's propaganda to even just say like current slave, slave prices in Jamaica and list it off as a matter of fact thing. Right. You know, that itself is propaganda because it, it in no way raises questions about, say, the morality or the horror or right. how many people might have died in route or whatever. You know, when you just list uh, a commodity and a price, it sort of suggests that the thing almost happens without any human engagement. Correct. So anyway, I want to contextualize. The system was horrifying, but until the public really understood how horrifying it was, there was no real political will to harm the trade because it was profitable and then theoretically good for everybody, or at least it seemed seemed neutral. Yep. Parliamentary hearings, however, made the public aware, and they responded as you might expect. They engaged in these massive countrywide rum and sugar boycotts, rum and sugar being the the chief products of Caribbean slave islands. Yes. There was also a flood of abolitionist literature that sort of starts to emerge. Mm -hmm. Increasing numbers of clergy and even aristocrats joined the cause. Even fashion played a role in trying to fight against the slave trade. Josiah Wedgwood, who, uh, if you just take a minute and Google Wedgwood pottery, you, you'll see was super famous, uh, for kind of, uh, one of the early industrial forms of pottery that, that swept the world. Uh, Wedgwood pottery becomes like the, the kind of plates and bowls that everybody uses. Oh, nice. He also made jewelry and things like that. Well, he started making thousands of cameos with uh, a very famous symbol that, uh, of the time, where it was a man, an African man in chains on his knees, holding his hands clasped together like he's praying. And it said, am I not a man and a brother? Yes, I think I've seen that. An appeal to common humanity. So he started making all of these cameos with that mm-hmm. motto. And you could find this logo and these cameos on snuff boxes, women's bracelets, even hairpins that held women's elaborate hairstyles. Like, he was appealing to the middle class, right? Selling these things to the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Common working folk don't need hairpins with a huge cameo on them. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You know, to hold their elaborate hairstyles that they've paid, you know, like a, a month's worth of wages for. Sure. But but he's appealing to this middle class, right? With these with this, these stories. Right. And again, it's stories like the stories of the Robin Johns that are among the most popular that spread around. Because the middle class can really relate to that. You know, they can relate to that more than they can to somebody who's been captured in war. Right. Even if the war, even if the war is a farce or somebody who's deemed a criminal, even if the crime is a farce, right. you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Yep. Like they don't have the nuance to understand. Right. Well, the crime they've been convicted of is a crime that isn't a crime in their own country. It's basically a pretense to kidnap them. Correct. But they can understand a couple of princes. Right. That have been kidnapped. You, you know what I mean? Yep. Anyway, in short, it became like the popular fashion of the day to wear the Abolition Society logo on your clothes or in your hair or to use it even like when you have snuff. Meanwhile, while this is all happening, Clarkson, Thomas Clarkson, logged more than 35,000 miles traveling in England. He covered 35,000 miles just in England trying to find evidence of the horrors of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. When he finally felt he had gathered enough evidence and enough witnesses, including uh, a very respectable person named George Miller, who had served aboard the Canterbury during the massacre of 1767 and was willing to testify. He brought his case to Parliament, 
just one year later, with Clarkson's evidence beginning to pour in, and maybe more important, the public becoming awakened to the horrors of the slave trade, Parliament decided, so one year later from, I'm sorry, one year later from William Wilberforce, he proposed this legislation in 1791, and church bells rang out and fireworks shot off because it was it was rejected. Right, so there's this massive celebration mm-hmm. from the kind of bourgeois institutions of like the church. You know, they were given a, a half day holiday, right? So the state. One year later, Parliament decided to enact a gradual abolition of the slave trade. So in 1792, things had changed so much. Parliament was like, "Okay, we'll enact a gradual, a, like a you know, a sure. tapering down." Sure. Right. So you can imagine there's a lot of rich people against this, right? So they have a big yes. Uh, you know, opposition. So the gradual thing is like, well, look, we gotta, we have to figure this out because these rich people are powerful. Well, yeah, but it's kind of it's it's a kind of an interesting thing because again, the slave trade is is in large measure there are aristocrats to be sure, but in large measure this is a middle class. This is an opportunity for people to become middle class. Gotcha. Right. So so merchants who. Um, you know, again, we're still, we're talking at a time where the idea of a middle class is just being formed. Sure. So, I mean, and slavery is just uh, like an industrial right. form right. of labor, right? I mean, it is industrial. The way that the slave trade is practiced by the English is industrializing, yes, an ancient institution, slavery, but it's doing it on an industrial scale. Right. Right. So that's that's what's new. Um, so... So things change rapidly. I mean, 1791, people like the, the government, the official sort of organs of the state celebrate that the, the bill is rejected. In 1792, they're like, fine, we'll gradually reduce things. And then, you know, just uh, 13 years later, they're like, uh, sorry, in 1805, so 13 years later, they made it illegal for English uh, English ships to supply slaves to any foreign market. So, um, so again, like uh, for those 13 years from 1792 to 1805, they're tapering how much slavery will be allowed. And then in 1805, they're like, all right, you can only sell slaves to English markets like Jamaica. I mean, because by 18, 1805, the, the United States exists. So that's not an English market anymore. Right. So it's only really the Caribbean colonies. Gotcha. Anyway, by 1807, finally, Parliament outlawed the transatlantic slave trade altogether. The United States would outlaw it one year later. John Wesley fought against the trade until his dying day. In 1788, he advertised that he was giving an abolition sermon at the New Room. So 1788, four years before there's any movement on the issue. Mm-hmm. So he, he says he's going to give this abolition sermon at the New Room, which was where the Robin Johns had worshipped with their Methodist friends in Bristol. Okay. Even though it was a bit unusual to announce the topic of a sermon in advance, the sermon packed the room and was maybe the most exciting sermon Wesley ever gave in his rather exciting life. He excitedly wrote that the room was filled, quote, from end to end with high and low, rich and poor. You might have imagined it was take, was a city taken by storm, end quote. Now, despite his tireless work towards abolition, John Wesley died in 1791 before the very first victories. Again, 1791 was the year that Wilberforce's first bill was was uh, defeated. Okay. But his final words when he died were slave trade. <laughs> that is too funny. Yeah. The guy never stopped thinking about it, right? On his deathbed. 
Slave trade. On his deathbed, as he died, slave trade. (laughs) That's spooky. Yeah. Good. I was going for that. 40 years after the two princes of Old Calabar were captured, enslaved, and sold in the Americas, their story and the story of countless others who were kidnapped, brutalized, and enslaved, those men, women, and children, ultimately led to the British abolition of the transatlantic slave trade after some 300 years. Mm. Once the British did it, the United States followed one year later in 1808, which was the first year possible because the Constitution promises that slavery won't, the slave trade won't be abolished for 20 years. Okay. There's a little fact for you about the Constitution that the Constitution says, <laughs> don't worry, we won't abolish the slave trade for at least 20 years. Oh, good for them. And then they did. I saw the light. So, in other words, the slave trade was a constitutional right for 20 years. Sure. <laughs> Nevertheless, little Ephraim and Ancona Robin Robinjohn, two men who desperately wanted to return to, quote, their deserved country, end quote. And they managed to escape slavery multiple times and multiple ways, in so doing, managed to change the course of history, particularly the history of the transatlantic slave trade. So that's it. That's the story. It's an amazing. Yeah, that's the story of the Robin Johns. That's an amazing, amazing story about little F and Annie. I love it. I love it. Now, how old were they when they finally, at the end of this story, how old are they? Well, we don't know because we're not exactly – look, we don't know how old basically anyone was in those times. Mm-hmm. Like we have pretty good estimates. Like like certain really like very elite people we know when they were born and when they died. Um, but like most people lived and died. You have uh, no idea when they were really born, when they really died. Like the record right. keeping. And so, yeah, we have no idea. Um, we don't – I don't even know when the, the Robin Johns died. Like I'm not – I couldn't okay. even tell you a year. But – you know, assume that they were kidnapped in their early 20s or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, so they probably got home around 30 or in their early 30s. You know, say they lived till 60. You know what I mean? Like that's, if that was the case, if they lived to their 60s, you know, if they lived to their 60s, uh, what would that be? They got home in 1772? Yep. Um, or no, no, sorry, 1774? So they got home in 1774, probably in their 30s. If they lived till 1804, they are in their 60s. Yep. They may have lived to see the end of the transatlantic slave trade. They may not have. Um, but they probably died right around that same time. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the, I mean, it's, again, fascinating story about a couple of guys who, uh, you know, really left their mark on history, probably never really quite knew it. It's an amazing, 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 amazing story. Um, what a struggle they had. And like I said, I mean, none of what they went through probably uh, is possible if they weren't if they weren't the elite guys that they were. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. none of what they accomplished and what they did and the way that they got their freedom, none of that probably happens if they're not literate, if they're not you know uh, well versed, well trained in English custom and and mode of being and culture. They knew the law, huh? They knew the law. Yeah, I mean it's it's all pretty remarkable. I mean, because they're able to to read and write and and all of that, uh it's pretty, you know, they're able to accomplish pretty amazing things. Unbelievable. So, unbelievable story. Yeah, I'm I'm, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I uh I have to uh record the the sources on it. Um cuz I forgot to leave it in the document. Like I don't you since you don't listen to these, 
you bastard. <laughs> Although it's good, you don't listen to them, so so I don't. So like your downloads don't count, and I listen to oh, them. Yeah. I listen to them outside of the downloads, so that my downloads don't count. Good. I mean, I've listened to in the downloads just because I wanted to hear uh, whether or not the mic quality was good, and and then I realized it was terrible. So then I got a new mic, and now the mic quality is better, but still not great. But one day when uh, you know maybe we can make some money, mm-hmm. I could buy a decent mic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One day when we make some money, you can buy a decent mic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me first, because I talk more. But then, then you. <laughs> and uh, so, like I said, when I saw that we were at 101. That's awesome. Uh, I was like, man, I've downloaded two. So that means we're really at 99. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like... Still, I'm happy we're over a hundred, but I know two of them are two of them are me. Right. So I'm a little like, oh man. Let's see, how do we wrap this up? We have to. We'll we'll come out with a nice professional ending. So in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to wrap it up. So this has been another <laughs> unbalanced views. Thanks for listening. I can tell you this. Uh, while I want to keep Mike completely ignorant to the topics, uh, the next episode will be out sooner than later. Yep. There's been a long delay because we had a, a computer get fried. And then there's been some traveling, uh, and a lot of things getting in the way of recording. But the next episode will be a sweet, sweet murder mystery. Ooh, that's going to be exciting. And then after that, we're going to do a little, uh, we're going to do a little disease history after that. Ooh, uh, so the next two episodes are lined up. I'm, I'm, I've been actively working on them. Good. And, uh, so we're going to do a little disease history, a little murder mystery. Uh, so something to look forward to for those of you who are listening. Pretty fun stories coming up. Awesome. Look forward to it. And on that note, Mike, any last words? Nope. See you guys next time. Have a great week. Be kind. God bless. That's it. Yeah. Be kind. Be kind to each other. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. See you. Slave trade. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, unbalanced listeners. It's Brian here. I wanted to remind you that you can now find us on Twitter at Views Unbalanced, and you can email us at unbalancedviews at gmail.com. Uh, sources for this episode, for this story, are primarily Randy Sparks, The Two Princes of Calabar, An 18th Century Odyssey, Paul Gilroy, The Black Atlantic, Modernity and Double Consciousness, Ira Berlin, Many Thousands Gone, The First Two Centuries of Slavery in North America, I also relied a bit on W. Jeffrey Bolster's Blackjacks, uh, African Americans in the Age of Sail. I also rely on Julia Sherrard Scott's, until recently, unpublished dissertation, The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, and John Wesley, Thoughts Upon Slavery. There are many, just countless other books that I, to inform my thinking about the Atlantic world, about uh, the utility of oral histories versus written histories, uh, as well as the cultural and social impacts of slavery in the Americas. Uh, Two countless to list here, but I'm certainly happy to offer all kinds of recommendations if you reach out to me via email or Twitter. On that note, uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. My grandmother calls them minigons.